Section 7 of the Columbia Accident Investigation Board Final Report, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Columbia Accident Investigation Board Final Report, Volume 1, by the Columbia Accident Investigation Board. Chapter 2C Columbia's Final Flight, Part 3. Chapter 2.6 Deorbit Burn and Reentry Events. At 2.30 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on February 1, 2003, the entry flight control team began duty in the Mission Control Center. The flight control team was not working any issues or problems related to the planned deorbit and reentry of Columbia. In particular, the team indicated no concerns about the debris impact to the left wing during ascent and treated the re-entry like any other. The team worked through the deorbit preparation checklist and re-entry checklist procedures. Weather forecasters, with the help of pilots in the shuttle training aircraft, evaluated landing site weather conditions at the Kennedy Space Center. At the time of the deorbit decision, about 20 minutes before the initiation of the deorbit burn, all weather observations and forecasts were within guidelines set by the flight rules, and all systems were normal. Shortly after 8 a.m., the Mission Control Center Entry Flight Director polled the Mission Control Room for a go-no-go -go decision for the deorbit burn. And at 8.10 a.m., the capsule communicator notified the crew that they were go for deorbit burn. As the orbiter flew upside down and tail first over the Indian Ocean at an altitude of 175 statute miles, Commander Husband and Pilot McCool executed the deorbit burn at 8.15.30 a.m. using Columbia's two orbital maneuvering system engines. The deorbit maneuver was performed on the 255th orbit, and the 2-minute 38-second burn slowed the orbiter from 17,500 miles per hour to begin its re-entry into the atmosphere. During the deorbit burn, the crew felt about 10% of the effects of gravity. There were no problems during the burn, after which husband maneuvered Columbia into a right-side-up, forward-facing position, with the orbiter's nose pitched up. Entry interface, arbitrarily defined as the point at which the orbiter enters the discernible atmosphere at 400,000 feet, occurred at 8.44.09 a.m. Entry interface plus 000 seconds, written EI plus 000, over the Pacific Ocean. As Columbia descended from space into the atmosphere, the heat produced by air molecules colliding with the orbiter typically caused wing leading-edge temperatures to rise steadily, reaching an estimated 2,500 degrees Fahrenheit during the next six minutes. As superheated air molecules discharged light, astronauts on the flight deck saw bright flashes envelop the orbiter, a normal phenomenon. At 8.48.39 a.m., EI plus 270, a sensor on the left-wing leading-edge spar showed strains higher than those seen on previous Columbia re-entries. 
This was recorded only on the modular auxiliary data system, and was not telemetered to ground controllers or displayed to the crew. At 8.49.32 a.m., EI plus 3.23, traveling at approximately Mach 24.5, Columbia executed a roll to the right, beginning a pre-planned banking turn to manage lift, and therefore limit the orbiter's rate of descent and heating. At 8.50.53 a.m., EI plus 404, traveling at Mach 24.1 and at approximately 243,000 feet, Columbia entered a 10-minute period of peak heating, during which the thermal stresses were at their maximum. By 8.52 a.m., EI plus 471, nearly eight minutes after entering the atmosphere, and some 300 miles west of the California coastline, the wing leading-edge temperatures usually reached 2,650 degrees Fahrenheit. Columbia crossed the California coast west of Sacramento at 8.53.26 a.m., EI plus 5.57. Traveling at Mach 23 and 231,600 feet, the orbiter's wing leading edge typically reached more than an estimated 2,800 degrees Fahrenheit. Now crossing California, the orbiter appeared to observers on the ground as a bright spot of light moving rapidly across the sky. Signs of debris being shed were sighted at 8.53.46 a.m., EI plus 577, when the superheated air surrounding the orbiter suddenly brightened causing a noticeable streak in the orbiter's luminescent trail. Observers witnessed another four similar events during the following 23 seconds, and a bright flash just seconds after Columbia crossed from California into Nevada airspace at 8.54.25 a.m., EI plus 614, when the orbiter was traveling at Mach 22.5 and 227,400 feet. Witnesses observed another 18 similar events in the next four minutes as Columbia streaked over Utah, Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas. In mission control, re-entry appeared normal until 8.54.24 a.m., EI plus 613, when the maintenance, mechanical, and crew systems, MMACS officer, informed the flight director that four hydraulic sensors in the left wing were indicating off-scale low, a reading that falls below the minimum capability of the sensor. As the seconds passed, the entry team continued to discuss the four failed indicators. At 8.55 a.m., EI plus 6.51, nearly 11 minutes after Columbia had re-entered the atmosphere, wing leading-edge temperatures normally reached nearly 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit. At 8.55.32 a.m., EI plus 6.83, Columbia crossed from Nevada into Utah while traveling at Mach 21.8 and 223,400 feet. Twenty seconds later, the orbiter crossed from Utah into Arizona. At 8.56.30 a.m., EI plus 7.41, Columbia initiated a roll reversal, turning from right to left over Arizona. 
traveling at Mach 20.9 and 219,000 feet. Columbia crossed the Arizona-New Mexico state line at 856.45, EI plus 756, and passed just north of Albuquerque at 857.24, EI plus 795. Around 8.58 a.m., EI plus 831, wing leading edge temperatures typically decreased to 2,880 degrees Fahrenheit. At 8.58.20 a.m., EI plus 851, traveling at 209,800 feet and Mach 19.5, Columbia crossed from New Mexico into Texas. And about this time, shed a thermal protection system tile, which was the most westerly piece of debris that has been recovered. Searchers found this tile in a field in Littlefield, Texas, just northwest of Lubbock. At 8.59.15 a.m., EI plus 906, MMACS informed the flight director that pressure readings had been lost on both left main landing gear tires. The flight director then told the capsule communicator, CAPCOM, to let the crew know that Mission Control saw the messages and was evaluating the indications, and added that the flight control team did not understand the crew's last transmission. At 8.59.32 a.m., EI plus 9.23, a broken response from the mission commander was recorded. Roger, cut off in mid-word. It was the last communication from the crew and the last telemetry signal received in mission control. Videos made by observers on the ground at 9 a.m. and 18 seconds, EI plus 969, revealed that the orbiter was disintegrating. 2.7. Events immediately following the accident. A series of events occurred immediately after the accident that would set the stage for the subsequent investigation. NASA Emergency Response Shortly after the scheduled landing time of 9.16 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, NASA declared a shuttle contingency and executed the contingency action plan that had been established after the Challenger accident. As part of that plan, NASA Administrator Sean O'Keefe activated the International Space Station and Space Shuttle Mishap Interagency Investigation Board at 10.30 a.m. and named Admiral Harold W. Gaiman, Jr., U.S. Navy, retired as its chair. Senior members of the NASA leadership met as part of the Headquarters Contingency Action Team and quickly notified astronaut families, the President, and members of Congress. President Bush telephoned Israeli Prime Minister Ariel Sharon to inform him of the loss of Columbia crew member Ilan Ramon, Israel's first astronaut. Several hours later, President Bush addressed the nation, saying, Columbia is lost. There are no survivors. In order to preserve all material relating to STS-107 as evidence for the accident investigation, NASA officials impounded data, software, hardware, and facilities at NASA and contractor sites in accordance with the pre-existing mishap response plan. At the Johnson Space Center, the door to mission control was locked, 
while personnel at the flight control consoles archived all original mission data. At the Kennedy Space Center, mission facilities and related hardware, including Launch Complex 39A, were put under guard or stored in secure warehouses. Officials took similar actions at other key shuttle facilities, including the Marshall Space Flight Center and the Michaud Assembly Facility. Within minutes of the accident, the NASA Mishap Investigation Team was activated to coordinate debris recovery efforts with local, state, and federal agencies. The team initially operated out of Barksdale Air Force Base in Louisiana, and soon after in Lufkin, Texas, and Carswell Field in Fort Worth, Texas. Debris Search and Recovery On the morning of February 1st, a crackling boom that signaled the breakup of Columbia startled residents of East Texas. The long, low-pitched rumble, heard just before 8 a.m. Central Standard Time, was generated by pieces of debris streaking into the upper atmosphere at nearly 12,000 miles per hour. Within minutes, that debris fell to the ground. Cattle stampeded in eastern Nacogdoches County. A fisherman on Toledo Bend Reservoir saw a piece splash down in the water, while a woman driving near Lufkin almost lost control of her car when debris smacked her windshield. As 911 dispatchers across Texas were flooded with calls reporting sonic booms and smoking debris, emergency personnel soon realized that residents were encountering the remnants of the orbiter that NASA had reported missing just minutes before. The emergency response that began shortly after 8 a.m. Central Standard Time Saturday morning grew into a massive effort to decontaminate and recover debris strewn over an area that in Texas alone exceeded 2,000 square miles. Local fire and police departments called in all personnel, who began responding to debris reports that by late afternoon were phoned in at a rate of 18 per minute. Within hours of the accident, President Bush declared East Texas a federal disaster area, enabling the dispatch of emergency response teams from the Federal Emergency Management Agency and Environmental Protection Agency. As the day wore on, county constables, volunteers on horseback, and local citizens headed into pine forests and bushy thickets in search of debris and crew remains, while National Guard units mobilized to assist local law enforcement and to guard debris sites. Researchers from Stephen F. Austin University sent seven teams into the field with Global Positioning System units to mark the exact location of debris. The researchers, and later searchers, then used this data to update debris distribution on detailed geographic information system maps. Public Safety Concerns from the start, NASA officials sought to make the public aware of the hazards posed by certain pieces of debris, as well as the importance of turning over all debris to authorities. Columbia carried highly toxic propellants that maneuvered the orbiter in space, and during early stages of re-entry. These propellants, and other gases and liquids, were stored in pressurized tanks and cylinders that posed a danger to people who might approach orbiter debris. The propellants, monomethyl, hydrazine, and nitrogen tetroxide, as well as concentrated ammonia used in the orbiter's cooling systems, 
can severely burn the lungs and exposed skin when encountered in vapor form. Other materials used in the orbiter, such as beryllium, are also toxic. The orbiter also contains various pyrotechnic devices that eject or release items such as the Kuband antenna, landing gear doors, and hatches in an emergency. These pyrotechnic devices and their triggers, which are designed to withstand high heat and therefore may have survived re-entry, posed a danger to people and livestock. They had to be removed by personnel trained in ordnance disposal. In light of these and other hazards, NASA officials worked with local media and law enforcement to ensure that no one on the ground would be injured. To determine that orbiter debris did not threaten air quality or drinking water, the Environmental Protection Agency activated emergency response and removal service contractors who surveyed the area. Land Search The tremendous efforts mounted by the National Guard, Texas Department of Public Safety, and emergency personnel from local towns and communities were soon overwhelmed by the expanding bounds of the debris field, the densest region of which ran from just south of Fort Worth, Texas, to Fort Polk, Louisiana. Faced with a debris field several orders of magnitude larger than any previous accident site, NASA and the Federal Emergency Management Agency officials activated Forest Service wildland firefighters to serve as the primary search teams. As NASA identified the areas to be searched, personnel and equipment were furnished by the Forest Service. Within two weeks, the number of ground searchers exceeded 3,000. Within a month, more than 4,000 searchers were flown in from around the country to base camps in Corsicana, Palestine, Nacogdoches, and Hemphill, Texas. These searchers, drawn from across the United States and Puerto Rico, worked 12 hours per day on 14, 21, or 30-day rotations, and were accompanied by global positioning system-equipped NASA and Environmental Protection Agency personnel, trained to handle and identify debris. Based on sophisticated mapping of debris trajectories gathered from telemetry, radar, photographs, video, and meteorological data, as well as reports from the general public, teams were dispatched to walk precise grids of East Texas pine brush and thicket. In lines ten feet apart, a distance calculated to provide a 75% probability of detecting a six-inch square object, Wildland firefighters scoured snake-infested swamps, mud-filled creek beds, and brush so thick that one team advanced only a few hundred feet in an entire morning. These twenty-person ground teams systematically covered an area two miles to either side of the orbiter's ground track. Initial efforts concentrated on the search for human remains and the debris corridor between Corsicana, Texas, and Fort Polk. Searchers gave highest priority to a list of some twenty hot items that potentially contained crucial information, including the orbiter's general-purpose computers, film, cameras, and the modular auxiliary data system recorder. Once the wildland firefighters entered the field, recovery rates exceeded 1,000 pieces of debris per day. After searchers spotted a piece of debris and determined it was not hazardous, its location was recorded with a global positioning system unit and photographed. 
The debris was then tagged and taken to one of four collection centers at Corsicana, Palestine, Nacogdoches, and Hemphill, Texas. Their engineers made a preliminary identification, entered the find into a database, and then shipped the debris to Kennedy Space Center, where it was further analyzed in a hangar dedicated to the debris reconstruction. Air Search Air crews used 37 helicopters and 7 fixed-wing aircraft to augment ground searchers by searching for debris farther out from the orbiter's ground track, from 2 miles from the center line to 5 miles on either side. Initially, these crews used advanced remote sensing technologies, including two satellite platforms, hyperspectral and forward-looking infrared scanners, forest penetration radar, and imagery from Lockheed U-2 reconnaissance aircraft. Because of the density of the East Texas vegetation, the small sizes of the debris, and the inability of sensors to differentiate orbiter material from other objects, these devices proved of little value. As a result, the detection work fell to spotter teams who visually scanned the terrain. Air search coordinators apportioned grids to allow a 50% probability of detection for a one-foot square object. Civil Air Patrol volunteers and others in powered parachutes, a type of ultralight aircraft, also participated in the search but were less successful than helicopter and fixed-wing air crews in retrieving debris. During the air search, a Bell 407 helicopter crashed in Angelina National Forest in San Agustin County after a mechanical failure. The accident took the lives of Jules F. Buzz Meyer, Jr., a contract pilot, and Charles Krenick, a Texas Forest Service employee, and injured three others. Water Search The United States Navy Supervisor of Salvage organized eight dive teams to search Lake Nacogdoches and Toledo Bend Reservoir, two bodies of water in dense debris fields. Sonar mapping of more than 31 square miles of lake bottom identified more than 3,100 targets in Toledo Bend and 326 targets in Lake Nacogdoches. Divers explored each target, but in murky water, with visibility of only a few inches, underwater forests, and other submerged hazards, they recovered only one object in Toledo Bend and none in Lake Nacogdoches. The sixty divers came from the Navy, Coast Guard, Environmental Protection Agency, Texas Forest Service, Texas Department of Public Safety, Houston and Galveston Police and Fire Departments, and Jasper County Sheriff's Department. Search Beyond Texas and Louisiana As thousands of personnel combed the orbiter's ground track in Texas and Louisiana, other civic and community groups searched areas further west. Environmental organizations and local law enforcement walked three counties of California coastline, where oceanographic data indicated a high probability of debris washing ashore. Prison inmates scoured sections of the Nevada desert. Civil Air Patrol units and other volunteers searched thousands of acres in New Mexico by air and on foot. 
Though these searchers failed to find any debris, they provided a valuable service by closing out potential debris sites, including nine areas in Texas, New Mexico, Nevada, and Utah, identified by the National Transportation Safety Board as likely to contain debris. NASA's mishap investigation team addressed each of the 1,459 debris reports it received. So eager was the general public to turn in pieces of potential debris that NASA received reports from 37 U.S. states that Columbia's re-entry ground track did not cross, as well as from Canada, Jamaica, and the Bahamas. Property Damage no one was injured, and little property damage resulted from the tens of thousands of pieces of falling debris. See Chapter 10. A reimbursement program administered by NASA distributed approximately $50,000 to property owners who made claims resulting from falling debris or collateral damage from the search efforts. There were, however, a few close calls, that emphasize the importance of selecting the ground track that re-entering orbiters follow. A 600-pound piece of a main engine dug a six-foot-wide hole in the Fort Polk golf course, while an 800-pound main engine piece, which hit the ground at an estimated 1,400 miles per hour, dug an even larger hole nearby. Disaster was narrowly averted outside Nacogdoches when a piece of debris landed between two highly explosive natural gas tanks set just feet apart. Debris Amnesty The response of the public in reporting and turning in debris was outstanding. To reinforce the message that orbiter debris was government property, as well as essential evidence of the accident's cause, NASA and local media officials repeatedly urged local residents to report all debris immediately. For those who might have been keeping debris as souvenirs, NASA offered an amnesty that ran for several days. In the end, only a handful of people were prosecuted for theft of debris. Final Totals more than 25,000 people from 270 organizations took part in debris recovery operations. All told, searchers expended over 1.5 million hours, covering more than 2.3 million acres, an area approaching the size of Connecticut. Over 700,000 acres were searched by foot, and searchers found over 84,000 individual pieces of orbiter debris, weighing more than 84,900 pounds, representing 38% of the orbiter's dry weight. Though significant evidence from radar returns and video recordings indicate debris shedding across California, Nevada, and New Mexico, the most westerly piece of confirmed debris at the time this report was published was the tile found in a field in Littleton, Texas. Heavier objects with higher ballistic coefficients, a measure of how far objects will travel in the air, landed toward the end of the debris trail in western Louisiana. The most easterly debris pieces, including the Space Shuttle main engine turbo pumps, were found in Fort Polk, Louisiana. The Federal Emergency Management Agency, which directed the overall effort, expended more than $305 million to fund the search. This cost does not include what NASA spent on aircraft support 
or the wages of hundreds of civil servants employed at the recovery area and in analysis roles at NASA centers. THE IMPORTANCE OF DEBRIS The debris collected by searchers aided the investigation in significant ways. Among the most important finds was the Modular Auxiliary Data System recorder that captured data from hundreds of sensors that were not telemetered to mission control. Data from these 800 sensors, recorded on 9,400 feet of magnetic tape, provided investigators with millions of data points, including temperature sensor readings from Columbia's left-wing leading edge. The data also helped fill a 30-second gap in telemetered data and provided an additional 14 seconds of data after the telemetry loss of signal. Recovered debris allowed investigators to build a three-dimensional reconstruction of Columbia's left-wing leading edge, which was the basis for understanding the order in which the left-wing structure came apart, and led investigators to determine that heat first entered the wing in the location where photoanalysis indicated the foam had struck. End of Section 7 Recording by Maria Casper